welcome back to the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I'm an automotive columnist for Bay Area News Group and the editor and publisher of the weeklydriver.com website. My colleague is Bruce Aldrich, and today our guest is Larry Dominique, who is the uh, North American CEO of PSA. Um, welcome to our program, sir. How are you? Good, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I received a release a while back about uh, Peugeot's uh, big announcement, so that's a good launching point today. Why don't you take us through, uh, in general terms, uh, what Peugeot has started started to do again uh, and to reintroduce itself, I guess, to the North American market, if that's an accurate way to put it. Absolutely, James. When, when, you, when you think, uh, it's interesting, many people don't really know PSA per se, but PSA is the parent company of the automotive brand with the brands of Peugeot, Citroen, DS, Opel, and Vauxhall. We also have a mobility brand referred to as Free to Move as well. And although Mr. Tavares, our CEO, uh, back in 2016, he announced our push to pass plan. And as a racer, he likes to use racing terminology and push to pass was the moniker he chose for the plan. And as I mentioned, we're the second largest group in Europe behind Volkswagen. As the time goes by, we have to reduce our overall dependency on the European market. In order to do that, we have to expand globally. Although we already have a footprint in Africa, the Middle East, South America, and in Asia, we don't have a footprint in India, and we don't have a footprint in the second largest market in the world, which is North America. So he announced, as part of the Push to Pass plan, our reentry plan to North America, which is actually part of a 10-year strategy, starting initially with mobility services, which I can explain as we go along. Sure. Mobility services with cars, and then eventually retailing vehicles as well. But it's, it's broader than that because it, it, it involves things like independent aftermarket, after sales, financing, and everything associated with selling and retailing cars. I see. Does the fact that Fiat and um, what's the other one? It's, Aston, uh, Alfa Romeo? Alfa Romeo Alfa. has recently returned to the States. Does that give you guys more confidence or does that have anything to do with you? Or do you even watch what, what the other players are doing? Uh, we watch everybody. <laughs> I would think you would. I would think you would. Yes, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, I, I've, I've, been, I've been in the auto, this industry for about 35 years. And what, what you notice, and one of the things that's key to the understanding of how we're approaching the North American market, is there are 42 brands existing in North America today, um, managed by about 18 different manufacturers. There's already announced GAC and Zoite, two Chinese brands are coming in. Alpha and Fiat came in a few years ago. And there's not a long line waiting for our brands to show up. So we are taking the approach saying, you know what? The marketplace is very crowded. It's highly competitive. It's heavily regulated. It's got a high cost of distribution. So first of all, how are we going to do it? And the question I get asked by a lot of people, why would you want to do it? I was going to ask so that. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask. Go ahead. Yeah, the fundamental, the fundamental reason is, is it's almost 19 million sales, or a little over 19 million sales between the U.S. and Canada. And the only market bigger is China. But China actually has over 100 brands for sale. So we have less than half that many brands in North America. But key also is the fact that in North America, we have high transaction prices, the highest in the world 
for automobiles. We have strong demographics, strong economic growth. So the reality is, if you're not in North America, you can't really be a global automaker. So, so our plan is to re-enter, but we're going to take a very careful and innovative approach to that market entry. Well, as I understand, step one, or at least the step that the public can see, is the Free to Move program that started in Washington, D.C. with, with some, some of your cars being used. Is that right? I, ironically, we're actually using General Motors products. Oh, I we, thought you had the, the Peugeot. No, none, none of our vehicles are yet fully oh. homologated or, okay. or designed to meet U.S. regulations. Well, that There's was my next question. Out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, so go we, ahead with We've the... made it very clear. We're somewhat brand agnostic from a mobility service point of view. We're willing to use any products that we think are appropriate for the market and for the customer need. So we launched Washington, D.C. car sharing under our free-to-move brand with 600 General Motors vehicles, 200 Equinoxes, and 400 Chevy Cruises. And it's been launched since mid-October. What has the reaction been so far? Do you have any uh, stats on that? And uh, I know that there's other players in that area and in our, in our state as well. But what have, what have you heard so far? And what have, what have the numbers shown if, if there are some new stats? Yeah, absolutely. So we've, we've grown to about 1,600 users in the three months that we've been in operation. We're seeing over, for every user we have on our system, we're seeing them use the, the service over six times a month, which is quite high. Yes. Um, our, 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 the great news is we developed a custom front-end application under free-to-move car sharing that you can download from Android or Apple Store. And our in-app rating, kind of the customer satisfaction, because what we're focusing on, guys, is how to satisfy customers first. That's the most important thing in everything we're doing. And we're seeing in-app ratings of 4.7, 4.8 out of 5. And we look at most of our competitors, they're in the mid-3s. So we're very happy with, with the launch of the service. We're being very um, frugal from an operational point of view, and we're satisfying customers. And, and I think as long as we continue to satisfy customers, we'll continue to grow the business. This is a little bit of a tangent here, but I've had a chance in the last 25 years or so to go to Europe a number of times to um, report on the Tour de France. And I've, I've, you, sometimes you rent one car and you get another. So I, I've had a Peugeot, I've had a Citroen, and I've had a Vauxhall over the years. And um, are any chance that the Vauxhall uh, would ever come back to the States? Or is that too much to ask? And are you not too concerned about that? Because I love Vauxhall. Yeah, Vauxhall of all of our brands is quite unique. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a sister of Opal brands. Yes. And it's only in one country, right. the UK. Yes. So it, it doesn't offshore from the UK at all. It's just in the UK itself. But I think one of the things, going back to our initial discussion, is really important to think about. When I took this position, I've lived my career. I've worked at General Motors. I've worked at Chrysler. I've worked at Nissan. I worked at TrueCar. And I ran Automotive Lease Guide for a while. The brand positioning is so important, and many OEMs spend a lot of energy trying to position their multiple brands, not only in the marketplace against competitors, but sometimes against themselves. Infinity to Nissan, Lexus to Toyota, Honda to Acura, and so forth. Yes. So we believe one of the keys to our future success here is to focus on a brand, which as of last week we announced, it's Peugeot. Yes. We're going to develop that brand and push, meaning 
we're not going to launch in 50 states and nine provinces. We're going to launch in a state. And yes. we're going to scale the business over the next several years as we develop the tools and the customer uh, customer base and we learn how to be successful selling and growing the Peugeot brand, then we're going to continue to expand. So the great news is we just announced our financial performance last week as a group. We had a global uh, return on sales of about 7.7% based on a revenue of almost $90 billion. So the group the great news for me is the group's not dependent upon North American business for us to be successful. It's an opportunity. So to step in the marketplace the right way, take your time, scale and invest as you grow is a much more sustainable model in our opinion. Well, I do like Peugeot's when I've driven them over in Europe, but I kind of miss my old Opel Cadet too from 1972. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, Mark, uh, I'm sure as you well know, um, uh, Genesis broke off from Hyundai and it's now uh, still available in Hyundai locations, but soon, if not already, they're going to have their own dealerships. How are you going to enter the market? Is it going to be, forgive me for not knowing, in your own dealerships, uh, direct sales uh, in conjunction with someone else? How is that going to work in the eight states where you'll debut? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. And it's a question we haven't completely been visible to the details of what we're doing. But what I can tell you is we think of the marketplace when you look at the existing dealership model in North America. So there's 32,000 dealer franchises in North America, in U.S., just U.S. alone. Yes. And and about 18,000 rooftops. In that context, and I, I know dozens of dealers across the country, we as the OEM world have developed a high fixed cost absorption model for our dealers. So we OEMs ask for large dealerships, big showrooms, big service bays, large parking lots and auto malls, million dollar an acre kind of property. Yes. And and when you talk to dealers, they're saying, you know what? I just have to push the metal and push the metal and push the metal to get a two and a half percent return on sales. So optimizing their optimizing their service absorption becomes their daily grind. And we think of it a little different. We said, what if the world was different and you actually wanted to focus on making a retail margin? So retail margin plus finance and insurance and don't rely on things like service revenue or used car revenue to support your business model. What the dealers tell us is that's a great idea, but we have to lower our fixed cost. So we said, okay, let's focus on that kind of initiative. So as we think about how we want to We've done two and a half years of research in the U.S. and Canada. And what the consumers told us, no matter where we talked to them, was about 90% said, if I never have to walk into a physical brick-and-mortar dealership again, I'm fine. Yes. But that's, that's universal, I'm, I'm thinking. Sure. Yeah. It is. And, and when you think back 40, 50 years before the Internet and before uh, technology allowed you to have the transparency you have today, having a local dealership was critical to the equation. But maybe not so much anymore. Customers don't visit four, five, six dealerships anymore. They visit one once they've made their decision as to where they're going to buy. Yes. So we also know with the digital economy, consumers have told us, you know, if I could transact this digitally, help me find a way to do that. But they still know this is a $35,000 purchase. So they say, but I do want to test drive it. How, how could I test drive it? Yes. So 
we know there's a physical element to this as well that we have to be able to deliver. So we're thinking in our minds things like test drive on demand, service on demand, delivery anywhere you want, those kind of things we're thinking about in our process. So our goal is to not start with a physical reality and move digital. We're saying to ourselves, how could you develop the right kind of retail model that starts digital and moves physical if and when the consumer wants to go physical? Okay. It's a very different philosophy. It's somewhat subtle. It matters a lot to the consumers. And as a greenfield, the, the beauty of, of the opportunity we have as, as PSA and Peugeot is we don't have legacy. I don't have legacy dealer network. I don't have legacy service dealer. Uh, I don't have legacy infrastructure. So we have the opportunity to build fresh and build new. Now, I, 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 very clear, franchise, franchise exists in the U.S. and Canada. They're there for a reason. They exist. They're not going away. So we believe if we want to be a national distributor of vehicles in the U.S. and Canada, we have to be able to, to comply to franchise law. But it doesn't mean we can't be amazingly innovative. And that's the approach we're taking. Gotcha. Um, if, if you can, I'm sure you can. Could you tell us um, the eight states? So it's actually 15 states. Oh, 15 states. I, th- so, I, th- I thought yeah, I, I, thought so I must have misheard you. I'm focus- sorry. No, not at all. Yeah. We're, we're focusing on 15 states and four provinces. So okay. the four provinces are Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Those four provinces represent 84 percent of Canadian sales and although I can never remember all 15 that's all right I'm sorry to, I thought if it was eight you probably but, could but 15 I'm sorry for asking but but the, but the 15 are scattered across the United States it's from Washington State California Arizona Texas Florida Georgia North Carolina Virginia Illinois New York New Jersey Maryland and a few other states as well yes And the 15 states we're initially focusing on, it doesn't mean we won't scale to all 50, but initially represent about 62% of all U.S. sales. How will the, what would the uh, service center, what would that look like? Would it be attached to the sales areas or different shops or do you know? Not, not likely. So we haven't talked about it in too much detail because we're still developing the model. But the idea of this just one location where you go in where all the retail, the F&I, the service, the used car is all in one location, we don't think is the future. I see. We think a much more agile, lean model. Uh, What that also means is when you talk about the number of retailers, um, Chevrolet has 3,300 franchisees. You know, Toyota has 1,200. Honda has 1,200. Subaru has 700, I think. So when you talk about the number of retailers, we believe in a digital economy, it can be done with many, many fewer retailers. Gotcha. Is it too early to ask what the lineup will look like? Um, maybe that's a good time to ask. What what kind of vehicles will you be offering? Yeah, we're, we're actually still, because we're homologating our platforms, yes. meaning that the, the platforms themselves, which put the different silhouettes on top of, we're homologating them, and we're, we're in the process of defining the product plan in detail. Mm-hmm. We know what it's going to be. We're still tweaking it. And the reason we're not specifically saying what the models are is because we believe we're innovating the next generation of products as well. We don't want to be too specific. 
But what I what I can say is the segments that matter in the U.S. and Canada are C-sized vehicles and D-sized vehicles. You know, those the C sedans, C hatch, C crossovers, D sedans, D crossovers represent around you know eight million units in North America, a little over eight million units. So, you know, those are the segments that we have to compete in, and those are the ones that matter to consumers the most. The Weekly Driver podcast gets support from. AmericanTrucks.com. Visit www.americantrucks.com. Is there a time frame? So the time frame outlined in the push to pass plan said it was a 10 year plan. Yes. So 2016 to 2026. It doesn't mean I have to wait until 2026 to retail cars. But what, what Mr. Tavares has been very clear about, and I'm very supportive of, is we're going to launch when we're ready when we have everything in place to be innovative, disruptive, uh, understanding our customers, understanding the mobility as a service, and we have the vehicles ready. So I'm very confident it'll be well before 2026. But one of the advantages I have is we announced also last week that we're going to launch our brand in North America importing vehicles, most likely from Europe. So the fact that we're building our volume on a fixed cost base out of Europe allows me to focus on marginal profit contribution to the group, which means unit number one or unit number 10,000 or 30,000 should all be profitable, which means there's no rush. It's about building the business and scaling it the right way. So Mr. Tavares has been very clear, Larry, we will launch when you say we're ready to launch. I have this image uh, from a few years ago at the LA auto show, uh, Buick, came in and on the first day of the media days they brought in a bunch of vintage uh vehicles i'm sorry it was lincoln and when they brought in uh elizabeth taylor's one-off lincoln from the 1950s so i can envision mm -hmm. peugeot going to some of the major auto shows uh with some vintage peugeots wouldn't that be something and and maybe you already have that plan and maybe you already do it but it would be nice to see some of those early models you know, it, it's, a, it's a great comment because we've had tremendous outreach from both Citroen owner clubs and Peugeot owner clubs. Yes. So I had, I had my team dig a little bit into registration data, and I found out there's still over 1,500 registered on-the-road Peugeots wow. in the U.S. today. <laughs> in the U.S., that's great. And, and, and we sold the last vehicle in 1992. So, so ironically... No, it's a new it's a new trivia question. Which state would you believe has the most Peugeots registered today? California. Any ideas? Florida. You might think so. Alabama. Oh, oh my God. Wow. What's nope. up what's up with that? What do you think that is? Do you have any idea? You know, I have no idea. We're we're trying to understand. We're reaching out to some of the Peugeot owner clubs. Was yeah. it a bunch of northerners from New York that retired? I don't know. But it, <laughs> it was quite interesting that Alabama. I, I had all these different visions of New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or California. Yeah, yeah. it's Alabama. I'm glad I asked. I'm going to use that trivia question. You know, next time a couple of friends and I go out and have a a beer or two, we're going to stump them with that question. That'll be great. <laughs> Um, well, what other area would you like to discuss with us? Um, how about just in terms of some of the manufacturers in, in, the, in the vintage uh, question area, some of the manufacturers will say, you know, um, our cars come from uh, uh, jet engines or this or that, and, and they really hang their hat on a, 
uh, a claim from a long time ago. What, where was the Peugeot legacy started, and, and what can you share about that? About that? This is what's actually fascinating about the Peugeot company and the Peugeot family. Peugeot, as an industrial manufacturer, is 208 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, our first automobile under the Peugeot brand was in the early 1890s. A lot of people don't know this, but Peugeot actually uh, was the first non-American brand to win the to win the Indianapolis. In we didn't 1990. hear you. 1919. Wow. Yeah, we won the Indianapolis. Wow. Yeah, we won. We actually won Indianapolis three times. This is the first time in 20, I mean, 1919 as the first non-American brand to win the Indianapolis 500, and. You know, although the company started with things like pepper grinders and coffee mills and other <laughs> industrial equipment, yes, they moved into automobiles, you know, very, very early, you know, late 1880s. And we've been producing cars ever since. And the brand automobile brand has evolved over time as well. So the way we position Peugeot globally is what we refer to as a high-end mainstream brand. So we're not saying we're, we're BMW, Mercedes. What we're saying is, is we, we compete at the high end of the, the volume brand category. And we believe in things, we have keywords in the brand such as motion and emotion. Gotcha. Allure. And, and we did a lot of research with consumers, with our actual products in North America. And as a French manufacturer, we had a lot of very positive associations. Uh, as you'd expect, people think about luxury goods, wine, um, design, but also innovation and technology came out. And the awareness for the Peugeot brand in North America, even though we've been gone for 28 years uh, from consumers, and the perception of our products was very, very positive. So it, it's a great starting point for us to begin our communication. If I've done the math correctly, uh, Indy 500 is usually at the end of May on Memorial Day weekend. And you mentioned 1919. It seems to me that's 100 years ago. Maybe you have a marketing campaign uh, to do with that. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll have to reach out to our, our brand CEO, Jean-Philippe Imperardo, and ask him that. Yes. Well, um, it'll be the pace car out there. Might be the pace car. And you have two, two podcasters in Sacramento that would love to be in that pace car. <laughs> Just um, <laughs> I uh, would. I would, too. Yeah, I bet you would. And I'm sure you would have uh, first choice. That would be great. Um, Larry, we want to thank you for being a guest. It sounds like, the, like personally, I can't wait. Have I don't know how many people in our area um, have uh, had a chance to drive those cars, but every time I've gone to Europe and driven one, they're they're fascinating. So we really want to thank um, PSA North American CEO Larry Dominique for being our guest today on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Thanks for filling us in on the future of uh, Peugeot. Can't wait to see him around. Thank yes. you very much. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. It was wonderful to talk to you. Cheers. Have a nice day. Bye-bye now. The Weekly Driver Podcast gets support from AmericanMuscle.com, your late model Mustang and F-150 authority, bringing you the hottest products and top-notch customer service for over a decade. No one makes it easier to modify your ride. Visit AmericanMuscle.com today 